It's time to turn down the noise and tune in to News You Can Use, the show that gives you a quick insight into the latest twists and turns in healthcare news, where every diagnosis comes with an order of side-splitting humor. Your hosts are Dr. Nick, a longtime host, innovator, and healthcare wizard who can prescribe a digital dose of innovation to cure even the most ailing operational inefficiencies. And Dr. Craig Joseph, the healthcare guru who can diagnose both patient and software glitches with equal precision, making sure hospitals run smoother than a well-oiled robot dock. So buckle up, because we're diving into the ER of excitement, the ICU of irrationality, and the waiting room of wacky wisdom. Now here's Dr. Nick and Dr. Craig. Welcome to the month of December. I'm Dr. Nick. And I'm Dr. Craig. This week, we'll be dissecting the latest healthcare news, unraveling the twists and turns, and making sense of some of the debacles. Just remember, life's a lot like breaking news stories. Unpredictable, often absurd, and occasionally leaving you wondering if it's all just a cosmic prank. This week, we take a look at burnout and doctors quitting. And we also dive into guidelines on health wellness, obesity and weight management, and breast cancer diagnoses. But first off this week, we're going to dive into GLP-1 agonists. And I'm going to put you on the spot, Craig. GLP, what does it stand for? Um, gosh, we're living <laughs> proud. It's Oh, uh, there you uh, go. <laughs> uh, I, that, for the record, ladies and gentlemen, I just made that up. Um, I, it's glucose. <laughs> glucagon, glucagon-like Glu- peptide 1 receptor agonist. There you there go. You go. <laughs> there you go. I, wow. I got to be frank, if I didn't have Google on my side, I probably would have uh, failed at that. But uh, I have been focusing a fair amount on it. And, you know, let's uh, let's dive in a, a second. There's been a lot of news, some of it um, more surprising than others. Uh, let's pick off the first piece that I, I, I don't know if I should be surprised. I think um, the uh, uh, endorsement of some of the more famous individuals, uh, in this case, Oprah Winfrey, not somebody that uh, I've spent a lot of time following, but she did have a book club. And what I did notice with her book club was as soon as somebody uh, had their book featured in her book club, it uh, appeared in the New York Times bestsellers list, pretty much. Um, And to be clear, I read some of them, and I don't know if they felt as good as that for me. And here she is. She's come out categorically and said, and interestingly, she didn't say I use it all the time. She says it's part of her solution. I think that's what I heard. Uh, what did you hear and what are your thoughts? Well, I, I, you know, she's been very involved with organizations like Weight Watchers and and, and certainly that's been a... Um, Hold on uh, a second. I think she's an investor, isn't she? <laughs> I said involved. Oh, okay. I, I said involved. Um, that, that's me being careful to, uh, not overplay or underplay. Uh, uh, but I, yes, I do think she's an investor, you know, Nick, um, uh, when I give Oprah advice about financial things, <laughs> she calls me up fairly regularly. I have to be honest. And, uh, you know, what should I invest in? What do you think about stocks? You know, those kinds of questions. I try to give her the best answer I can, Nick. That's all I'm saying. And, and have you managed to get your book into the, uh, Oprah book club yet? I thank you for mentioning my book. Uh, Designing is, for Health, it is, just so that it uh, is. for those of you that haven't read it, it's a <laughs> riveting read. Riveting. It, uh, now they think you're being sarcastic. No, not at all. I'm never. <laughs> it, uh, well, it, it, thank you for, for mentioning it. And uh, no, I have not been successful. 
Uh, I'm getting in on uh, on Oprah's book club. Um, I'm thinking of starting my own book club, and we'll see if I can rocket it up to the top of the uh, the bestsellers list. But to, in answer to your question, um, I think she's doing a lot of different things. Right, you have to eat well. Mm-hmm. Um, I shouldn't say you have to now you, you ought to eat well, you ought to exercise. You ought to be thoughtful about, um, uh, you know, what you do with your body. And there's all these medications out there now that can help as well. And, um, I think it's smart to, to be multimodal about this. It's just taking a pill is probably not the best answer for everything that ails you. Yeah. So I and and to be clear, some of the data that's emerged in the last uh, several weeks. Let's let's talk about a couple of the things that I saw. First of all, um, and I don't know that this spans across every single individual uh, version of this category of drugs, but uh, somewhere of the order of fifty percent of people are no longer on the therapy at the end of a year. And, you know, that's problematic. It's uh, as a result of the side effects, which are, mm, I, I'm, I, I don't want to define as serious or unserious, but they certainly call, uh, they cause enough problems that people stop taking the drugs. So that means that they're not going to be useful for obvious reasons. Um, and then the other thing that seems to be relatively clear, although, you know, we don't have a huge data set, is that if you stop taking the drug, it seems to be that the weight starts to return. So it's that appetite suppressant element, which is contributory, whatever. I don't think you can just take this and then stop and say, woohoo, I'm there, (laughs) if that's what you're desiring to do, which of course creates some challenges. Um, And I think you're right, as you highlight Oprah's sort of approach to this, which is you can't just have it as a drug. It's got to be part of a whole program of activity, you know, and I think the supporting services. And if I was hot on anything, I think it's the digital health companies that say we're going to incorporate this, but we're going to have a whole program around it that says, you know, break the cycle. I mean, I, I, I've seen it in a number of cases, and it's I know people are ecstatic with the results, truly ecstatic. And I know how hard it is. I've certainly gone through my, you know, cycles and challenges. You know, I'm currently good, but I could not be. Um, it's great to sort of break that cycle and get out of it. And then it's slightly easier to exercise and do better things. But I, I'm a little bit troubled by the fact that Europe is showing a shortage of these drugs. And it's not the manufacturing. It's the fact that they're shipping them all to the U.S. because that's where they're making all the money out of them. Yeah. Well, um, certainly there are some people here who are not uh, obese and are just trying to, you know, lose some weight. And mm-hmm. and um, it's not what the, the the med was was intended to do. Um, and I think we've always had questions of, wow, the initial data are amazing. Um, but what happens after a while? And is this a medication that you need to be on forever? And, and um, so... If it and, and what happens when you stop? And we've we're starting to see some of those some of those answers. Um, so the the question is: Are there other things that you can do while you're on the meds? And I, these are all just rhetorical questions. I don't think we know any of the answers. But you know, while you're on the on the meds, um, and they seem to be having, as we've talked about before, they have other effects. 
So certainly there's some side effects that we don't want, but mm. they, they seem to be, not only do they decrease your urge to, um, to overindulge in eating, but they might be helping other urges that are, are things that you would rather not be doing. So, um, watching, you know, watching less TV, playing fewer video games. Um, wait, list- GLP drugs stop you from watching no. too. I did not know that. Craig. I, they, I, they can, uh, yeah, they, they have something with the retina. It's a retina thing. Nick. Yeah. No. Um, I, there are all kinds of kind of claims that are out there. Again, this is all so preliminary. So we don't yeah. really know, but like that, um, you're on social. That's certainly one I read that you're on social media less right now. Again, are, if these are things that you're trying to, to stop doing, you're like, Hey, I don't want, I don't, most people that smoke, I would think if you ask them, they're like, yeah, I'd rather probably not be smoking, um, cigarettes, right. Mm. Um, they're, they're hooked and they don't like the feeling when they stop. And they know that it's not good for their health and they know that it costs a lot of money and they know that it's taxed like crazy. And uh, if they could stop, um, many, many would. And Mm -hmm. so these these, uh, GLP-1 agonists seem to help with lots of different things. I'm not saying that they'll cure everything that ails you or decrease all of your... um, all, all of the things you do that you, you'd rather stop doing, but they seem to help with some. Now, my point being, while you're on the meds, let's assume you're not going to be on it forever. While you're on the meds, can we re, can you, you know, change the way you do things? Can you start exercising regularly? Um, can you, um, you know, retrain the way that, uh, what you buy when you go to the grocery store and how you eat and how fast you eat? Are, are there opportunities that are there for you while you're on the med that when you stop inevitably, maybe taking the med, um, that these, now these better, um, uh, kind of workflows that you've established either externally or internally are there and they're still there and, and, you know, it it works. I I just feel like even in my own, in my own life, you know, if you see, um, you know, if you're exercising and and eating better and you see a reduction, uh, you see the effects, uh, uh, you know, you get, you, clothes fit better and other clothes you couldn't barely fit into now fit like that's your incentive to keep going right and so, i gotta say that i had the reverse experience my really clothes, my, yeah my clothes stopped fitting better they were like sacks on me all right i think because i didn't a, keep i didn't keep any you're agreeing with me you're agreeing i am with me. i am yeah but, but that was actually a very positive experience i i i did i, I did feel good um, also a little bit embarrassed when I looked at the size of some of the things that I did fit into. So, uh, you know, certainly been my experience and, you know, I've managed to break the cycle. I think one of the things that's interesting to me, it's surprising that, you know, there's some question as to whether it, it returns. And I think we still don't fully know, but, you know, if you understand the psychology, the, the, uh, physiology even of eating and gaining weight, if you're at a, a weight of a hundred, and you put on 20 pounds and you're now at 120 and then you go to lose five pounds, your body fights that as if 120 is now your new norm. The norm keeps moving up. And the fact that you can break that cycle with these drugs, bring it down and maybe bring it down to 100, maybe that resets the normal. So, you know, there's potentially some great news in here. And I think I'm fantastic. I mean, I'm, in, I'm truly excited for people because like you – smoking you know i'm sure people don't get up going 
how can I continue this? It's how can I not? And there's, you know, there's a pathway. To that point, um, there was, you know, some guidance and some commentary online on this whole um, advice, particularly for um, younger patients, which was your area of specialty, right? And we've seen this, we've seen the sort of transition to the younger age groups. We've seen more obesity. We've even seen more diabetes, I think, as a result of that. And two different groups came out with different guidelines that to me were a little bit surprising. I've got to be honest. Um, one said, you know, uh, diet, exercise, and the other said, uh, gosh, we should focus on Ozempic and surgery. You you read it. What did you think? Well, I, I think that um, uh, both of those characterizations were a bit extreme. Um, so uh, the two organizations Gosh, were talking- Extreme opinions online, shocking. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, th I think with as with so many things in life, Dr. Nick, uh, somewhere between the two extremes is probably the best area where- Exactly. The, the most accurate and the uh, most honest. Um, the U.S. Prevention Task Force, which is a uh, um, is not really a government organization, but kind of uh, a third party group that uh, is is um, collected. Experts around the country are are asked to come and, and give um, recommendations about healthcare, usually about prevention and and um, you know how to deal with certain common uh, problems. And um, they their report on on kids and and obesity. There's certainly an obesity epidemic. No one questions that. Um, and their recommendations were kind of along the same where um, they were a little bit more conservative. So, uh, hey, kids should exercise more. They should eat better. They should avoid all the things that are, you know, empty calories like juices and and um, uh, fast food and, and some of those things. Um, whereas another group that talks about kids all the time, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which I am a dues paying member, um, their recommendations were, a were, were certainly aligned with that, but kind of um, adding a little bit of, hey, um, when appropriate, and I think that's the thing that was missing, uh, physicians should consider both um, uh, see how I'm see how I'm playing that diplomatically. Consider both medications, these GLP one agonists, and um, and other medications, and uh, bariatric surgery uh, as appropriate. And I don't think that any of that is. I, I I think the controversy is well, how aggressive? You know, is it supposed to be that uh, you you take your kid to the doctor for the checkup, and your doctor says a kid's uh, a little overweight or um, you know significantly overweight, and just like, hey, we're not going to talk about any of the common things. We're not going to talk about how much they exercise. We're not going to talk about their diet. We're not going to talk about anything else. We're just going to go and here's a script. Like that is not the the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics. However, I think that they are seemingly more open based on evidence that they're interpreting that's out there now that these are medicine the medicines are should be in your um on your list of of uh in your toolbox of, perhaps in your toolbox in there I was going to say armamentarium but um that's probably not the best term yeah toolbox sure and and that they're okay to use but they should. I don't think anyone thinks that they should be first line for kids, and I'm not sure that they should be first line for for anyone. I think uh, you should always have a conversation about 
um, it's a very different conversation to walk in to your doctor and say, I've been work, I've been, I've had this problem for my entire life for the last two decades. I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried, you know, I've tried, I've talked to the nutritionist, I've done all of those things. And none of those things seem to help me or or um help me as long or as effectively as I want. That's a different conversation than, yeah, I'd like to lose some weight. So I, you, you uh, in our conversation about toolboxes, I'm reminded of my first ever medical bag, and it was actually a gift to me from uh, some fellows that uh, I used to uh, uh, get out, and uh, we we had a shooting club. We were in it was a clay pigeon shooting club, and um, uh, we, we were shooting one Sunday afternoon, and the uh, clay pigeon firing device sort of shattered and this clay came flying out and hit somebody in the back of the head and they started bleeding. It wasn't a terrible injury, but, you know, um, it, it was, you know, it was bleeding and oh, I, they all called for me. So I ran to my car because I had um, not a doctor's bag, but a plastic bag <laughs> full of all my bits that I carried around. Uh, and despite the fact that this was a very serious well, it wasn't very serious, but it was serious, and I came running along. All I got was laughter. I was laughed out of the <laughs> the place, and they all clubbed together and bought me a proper fancy medical leather bag as a result of that. So, <laughs> so I, I'm I'm reminded of that wonderful story of my very good friends from uh, many years ago when I was practicing. But um, anyway, so um, speaking of doctors, and you know, at the time I was uh, certainly a struggling young junior doctor. Uh, definitely burnt out. I've talked a lot about that, uh, both uh, on this podcast and uh, even in in pods, uh, uh, blogs that I've written. Um, we're seeing a huge exodus, or certainly an intention to leave. I, I think I've mentioned it. You know, with some of my individual interactions with clinicians, uh, there was a, a uh, article just recently published that sort of built on prior work that sort of talked about this, um, you know, intention to quit. Um, and they're finding that even more people uh, are indicating a moderate or higher intention to leave their job within two years, which given that we, I, I think I'm right in saying we have a shortage of physicians. Is that true? Um, we, we've got a bit of a problem, right? We we, we have a shortage uh, now, and it's often... Um, um, it's getting worse, but the, you know the shortage is it's seen in certain areas more than others, right? So rural areas have far fewer physicians than urban areas. Um, however, you know this study which looked at academic doctors, so these are docs that work for large academic medical centers um, like universities, typically, um, a third of them wow. reporting a third, right? That's the number, thirty-two percent, wow. moderate or high intention to leave in the next two years. So, I, I, you know, is it safe to extrapolate that to all physicians? I, I think it's. Well, you mean like our parachute study? Yes, that's. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure a lot of people uh, remember that, but um, you know, can you say because academic medical uh, doctors are uh, are kind of burned out, and a third of them might be leaving in the next two years? Can you say that is true of? Docs in urban air in rural areas and and doctors in private practice. Um, I think you can. Um, just that's based not so much on science, but on um, talking to these folks and and 
yeah, it's not any easier out in private practice. In fact, many could make arguments that it's more difficult. Right. You're, you're having to make payroll. And as an academic doc, you're kind of just, you're, you're working and doing research and all that other stuff. But one of the things though, that I thought was, um, was helpful that this article pointed out was things that actually help, you know, what can, can, what can be done to lessen the likelihood of a third of physicians in the next two years, um, leaving practice, either retiring or going to find something else to do. Um, and number one on that list was supportive leadership, right? These are, Hmm. Uh, if you're working at a, at a big academic center or for a big healthcare system, having leaders who seem supportive and not just looking at you like um, uh, cogs and uh, you know things that um, you're not producing widgets and you're not a factory, um, just that kind of that feeling of support. I understand. I hear you. I'm trying to help you. Um, was a big a big differentiator between people who are thinking of leaving and people who are seemingly um, uh, going to stay. Uh, other things that they found organizational alignment with the, the doctor's personal values. So does the organization I work for seem like they're really trying to help people or does it seem like they're trying to build another, another nice building and maximize the amount of marble that they can put in the lobby? Um, and finally, uh, a point that really, uh, warms the, the cockles of my heart, helpfulness with the electronic health record, Right. Can are there people at the organization who are actually trying to make it a tool that I can use as as opposed to a tool that's used against me? Mm. I've always felt that was like the uh, definitive requirement. Um, you you can have have something, but as long as you don't use it against me, so I'm willing to share my data as long as it's not used against me to the point of healthcare data um, and the EMR has certainly been used on both sides of that. So I, it, it seems like basic stuff to me, but then if it's being listed there, it obviously isn't. There must be an awful lot of this stuff going on. It's uh, a little bit shocking and um, I guess somewhat surprising. Um, let's talk a little bit about epic research. I know a favorite area of yours, uh, lots of studies keep popping out. Some I look at and go interesting, others, um, you know, not so much. That's all individual, but I'm I'm always excited about it. I think it's an interesting source of information. The most recent, well, actually, it wasn't that recent, but it, uh, the one that uh, sort of struck me um, was the um, uh, Hispanic women diagnosed with breast cancer more than seven year young, uh, seven years younger than white women on average, and I I, I just. I, I got to say, I started scratching my head. I couldn't understand. I, I I saw no sort of light through this as to what that was all about. Any thoughts? Well, it's it's um it is counterintuitive, right? Because um, typically uh, um, more marginalized parts or right. groups are, are not the ones that are getting the preventative care, uh, and so and that's what we're talking about um, with breast cancer. You know, are you getting your are women getting their mammograms? And so um, the interesting thing about Epic, it's an electronic health record company. I used to I worked there uh, a, a while ago. Um, they have access to all of these data points that um, are just really hard to believe. And so um, they say in this article that they they evaluated almost half a million 
diagnoses of breast cancer. Wow. Half of almost 485,000 that were in their electronic health, that, that their customers, you know, that are in records that their customers shared with them. Um, And that's between that's in, in five years between 2018 and 2023. And so, first of all, that number is very, very large. And so Mm -hmm. the larger your N is, the more accurate and likely your, more you valid can, the uh, results. Yeah, right? your yeah. results can be. And so uh, um, it's hard to explain this. Um, that one of their, uh, um, and this is not a formal uh, peer-reviewed journal right. article. They're, yeah. they're basically just putting out some data points and saying, hey, isn't this interesting? And one of their suggestions was, well, maybe um, Hispanic women are getting diagnosed not because of uh, mammograms, but because they actually had symptoms. Um, and And... Why would that be? I don't. I have no answer. Um, as, as in that they they're actually getting cancer at a higher rate. I mean, is is it a higher rate of cancer that's occurring in that subgroup? Well, at, at an earlier age, is that a possible explanation? I mean, there there are so many threads to this that yep. sort of raises questions that you go, I'd really like to know more. Well, I think that's I, maybe my my pushback on this. So great, that, you, you did it. Tell us some more. <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's, I'm looking at the data now and they say that um, 38% of uh, Hispanic women were recently screened. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure they define that, you know, within one year, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to um, uh, white uh, women in the U.S., uh, 48%. So 10% difference there um, in terms of recently screened. Wow. So, yeah. so clearly Hispanic women are not screened at the rates that um, right. we wish they would be, you know, we want a hundred percent. To your but, point of equity, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, well, we find ourselves at the end of another episode and at the end of the year, exploring healthcare's mysteries before they become your emergencies until next time. And until next year, I'm Dr. Nick. And I'm Dr. Craig.